Yeah, I think some excellent points were made that we need to spread the expertise of nephrologists across kind of greater segments of of, pop, of the population health. Um, and so doing interventions that are leveraging health information technology, so use of uh, e-consults, creating a registry within the electronic health record so you can track patients over time and reach out to the highest risk patients and risk stratified patients. Um, you know, those are all things that have been done in diabetes um, and certainly could be applied to CKD. And I think increasingly uh, people are people are doing so. But um, yeah, the decision support, e-consults, kind of all of these health information technology interventions. Did you know that the ISN offers free membership to doctors training in nephrology? Find out more on our brand new website at www.theisn.org. Hello and welcome to the Global Kidney Care Podcast. I am Roberto Picoafilho. I'm a nephrologist and the chair of the International Society of Nephrology Education Working Group. And I'll be your co-host for the episode today together with Smita. Smita, how's it going? Yeah, really well. Thanks, Roberto. So, hi, everyone. Um, And I'll jump straight into it. So, as always, Roberto manages to get the best speakers into the the podcast. And we've got a couple of people with us, Michael and Sri Laker. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves. um, And then I'll, uh, I'll ask Michael a quick intro question. So, I'll start with you, Michael. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Mike Schlotter. I am a physician and general internist at the University of California, San Francisco, and the San Francisco VA Medical School. Hi, everyone. I'm Sri Lake Tamalapali. I'm a nephrologist and health services researcher at Well Cornell Medicine. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So uh, we've got you on uh, the podcast today to talk a little bit about a really important initiative. Michael, do you want to tell us a little bit about this initiative, uh, why it's important, uh, what the philosophy of it is, and, and um, you know wh- why you guys did this? Yeah, so the, the genesis is that the KDGO organization asked uh, me to host and co-lead a controversies conference on CKD screening. And I think they asked me to do that because as a generalist, uh, we are in the thick of screening. You know, we do all kinds of screening, cancer, depression, and CKD screening has generally been a pretty nihilistic area. But with the advent of new medications, I think they wanted us to take another look and to see was there any, any evidence, any compelling reason. To, uh, to begin screening. And I think we'll discuss that, but I'll, I'll admit that I went into it from a very evidence-based framework, thinking that without a trial showing that screening improves outcomes, there would be no evidence. And so that was really my starting point. And uh, Leica joined me from that beginning, uh, beginning outset. And really the, the starting point was to collect a worldwide group of, of experts we really sought out people who were flexible thinkers, um, people who came from uh, an evidence-based framework, and uh, people who we thought um, were capable of both listening and contributing. And I need to say that my co-chair for this was Sophia Zungas, who's an endocrinologist and a public health expert um, from uh, Melbourne. I think one, one cool thing that I see about this um, is that the initiative started as a, as a conference 
and generated not only a conference report, but a series of other interesting things. They are being compiled by both KDU and more recently when ISN joined the initiative to provide sort of a, a, a toolkit that might help people in the dissemination and also in the implementation of the information that was generated by you guys. Um, so Mike, just to, to complete that introductory remarks, so how do you see this um, you know, toolkit serving the community? Yeah, so I believe that the toolkit provides the information that providers, patients, public health leaders need to make an informed decision around CKD screening. And because we come into this, what do we do when there's an absence of, of hard evidence from trials? Do we wait a generation until maybe a trial will come about? Or do we link a chain of evidence? And with this team of experts, I was in a listening role. And what I heard from the group was that it's really, there's an, there was an equity imperative. You know, the, the audience felt that we can't wait for a trial to be designed when CKD affects, you know, the, the persons who are least well supported by healthcare systems. You know, the countries that have the highest prevalence are the lowest socioeconomic countries. And within every country, the lowest socioeconomic segment has the highest burden of CKD. So rather than, you know, do an intellectual exercise on this, we decided we really wanted to do a call for action. And that was an amazing product of having, you know, impassioned people in a room together for two days. That's not how I anticipated that the meeting ended. Let's jump, jump into the nuts and bolts of what you guys um, found out and, and organized. And I might ask Sileleka to um, tell us, what, what do you see as the recommendations for who should be screened for chronic kidney disease? Right. So, so this was really one of the central conclusions of the conference and, you know, something that we really wanted to hit home. Um, and so what we had concluded was that patients with hypertension, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease should be screened for CKD. Um, and so, you know, again, this isn't a guideline recommendation. So there weren't, you know, necessarily randomized controlled trials proving this, but this was really the overwhelming conclusion of the conference. And this, the, you know, people really kind of were um, passionate and kind of rallied around this. Um, and so the way that we came up with this conclusion was looking at data on the prevalence of CKD in these populations, what the expected screening yield would be. Um, and I should say, you know, this kind of expands a lot of existing guidelines, which state that uh, patients with diabetes should be screened, but, um, you know, patients with hypertension um, have, have uh, a very high risk of, of albuminuria and a high prevalence of CKD as well. So, so I think that's, one of the take-home points from the conference is to screen patients with hypertension, um, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. And I, you know, another thing that supported this conclusion was cost-effectiveness studies, which we reviewed in detail and show that screening is cost-effective in these populations. Well, you know, they're both KDIGO and ISN are global organizations. So the, the documents you guys generated in this toolkit is going to be read by a variety of uh, people in different settings. 
So, Michael, what do you think about the, you know, um, the screening recommendations when it comes to, you know, low resource areas that might not be thinking about how to deal with this results of the screening? Well, first of all, I think that all healthcare delivery is local. And so I am I can only give advice and a perspective. Um, we believe that if there is a plan for treatment, then screening is valuable. And so what constitutes a plan for treatment? You know, on the higher economic end, you know, there's an armamentarium of therapies that we can discuss. You know, but what, what's the lowest bar for treatment? You know, if a patient is recognized as having CKD, health education, lifestyle advice, diet, exercise, smoking cessation. We, we felt as a group that that lowest denominator of, of an intervention merited CKD detection. And, and the patients, so we had patient advocates within our group. Um, they, um, both of them were kidney transplant recipients. And they felt strongly that patients need to know and that patients are very capable of changing their lifestyle with information about their risk. And that is directly in contrast to a very paternalistic um, evidence-based framework that often exists, which is um, don't tell a patient they have a disease unless you have like a full cure for it. So that would be, um, so it's a bit long-winded. Um, you know, every setting is different. But we are optimistic that there is some benefit from CKD detection in all settings. Yeah, just to build on that, because we do, we love to get obsessed with the cost of things, don't we? And we love to find reasons not to do things. Um, and the ISN is, is truly global. Um, and you've described how screening is of value in all populations. And, and, and later you touched on that analysis that you've done, which, you know, adds strength to that. Um, do you have a feel for what kind of tests we should be doing? Is it uniform across um, all um, healthcare systems or should we be modifying it? And, and do you really think, do we need to forget about costs as a barrier? Is it controversial and needs to be binned off? You know, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I certainly have a, a view on, and the group had a view on, on what constitutes screening. So let's start with that. I don't think a random creatinine test is CKD screening. And so we felt um, just as the CKD definitions um, have albuminuria stages and GFR stages, that um, the, the really the least common denominator for screening involves a test of albuminuria or proteinuria, ideally albuminuria and a, a test of a GFR estimate. We also felt that because creatinine has so much misclassification, both in sensitivity and non-specificity, that optimal CKD screening would involve cystatency added to creatinine. And, and there's a real rationale for that because uh, both patients and providers hate false positives. And there are just so many examples of Overdiagnosis. So, if we want to have credibility, we need to have a thorough assessment so that we can not only give a diagnosis but risk stratify. So then, so so, what's the cost of that? Um, so, our estimates uh, in the U.S. and you know, so in U.S. dollars, there's cost, and of course, there's reimbursement, and then there's what a patient gets charges. The cost is probably fifteen dollars 
large um, on large scale, and the charge, the reimbursement is about thirty dollars. So that is so that's sort of from a lab perspective. But one doesn't, you know, if well, I'll just stop there. Are you considering urine dipsticks as part of the albuminuria assessment for low resource areas? Is it reasonable? Or um, we definitely we think that urine dipsticks are better than nothing. And so um, we definitely feel that detecting injury is so important. We know they're insensitive. So you might be with a dipstick, you might really be detecting later stage albuminuria. But that's so important. That is far um, superior than just a creatinine test. So, yeah, yeah, that just highlights that, you know, as you've said, it's albuminuria and a measure of EGFR and each healthcare system can find their way of doing that. The principle is what's important. Um, so that's a really nice example of how different systems can use the same principles to guide their screening programs. I like that. Thank you. Now, it seems like... Um, you know, when you're talking about chronic kidney disease, uh, understanding the role of the nephrologist is an important thing to discuss. And um, we know that depending on where you are, you have more or less availability of uh, a kidney specialist. So I think it would be interesting to hear your perspective of, um, you know, what kind of patient profile would... Um, be indicative of a referral to a nephrologist? Yeah, I, I think that's such a great question. And the question that everybody wants to know, you know, after I screen, what if I find something, you know, what, sh what should I do? Um, and so for nephrology referral, I tend to go by the KDGO heat map. Um, and so, you know, the KDGO heat map breaks down people based on their risk of progression to kidney failure, but also, you know, reflects their risk of cardiovascular events and mortality. Um, and so you have on one side, the EGFR and on the, and the other side, the albuminuria. And so for patients, you know, in the KDGO heat map in the red boxes, those patients really should be referred to nephrology if possible. And so those are patients with CKD stage four, CKD stage five, and high, um, high albuminuria. So a3 and CKD stage three. And so um, those patients should be referred as well as patients that you suspect any structural abnormalities. So polycystic kidney disease or patients with microscopic hematuria that you're worried about um, some glomerular involvement. So those patients should be referred as well. But again, as you said, it really depends on your local care setting because a lot of low and middle income countries might have very few nephrologists in the entire country or even in high income countries in rural areas that the number of nephrologists might be low. Um, but I think kind of beyond referral, the important thing is that patients are well treated in all settings. And so the majority of CKD is going to be treated in the primary care setting. So I think we need to introduce new care models as, as as we might talk about later, um, about you know how the PCP and the specialists can really interact to to make sure that all patients get the appropriate treatment. Yeah, that brings it. Uh, that that really brings the next question um, into light. So you know you've touched on the lack of value of nephrologists in early CKD, because we definitely tend to focus in on the later stages, don't we? Um, but, you know, for the early CKD stages, uh, bringing in primary care, what kind of things do you want them to do? To do? You know, um, I think, Michael, you mentioned 
what your patients were saying about around lifestyles. What should we be doing for early CKD? And and when should we screen again? You know, what do we do? Do we treat? And then what do we do? It's a tricky one. Yeah. So um, let's start with the second question, because the what do we do after screening if it's negative the first time? Because I think that's such an important um, component that's lost on screening programs. Um, many screening programs have just an annual assumption. And that annual testing drives cost up so much, whereas there are much more nuanced uh, screening programs, such as colon cancer, where you might get a 10-year reprieve or you might get a one-year callback. And what I'd like us to do and what we would advocate is that the rescreening be based on risk. And so the the CKD Prognosis Consortium has a risk calculator. We haven't yet incorporated that. But if someone screens completely negative, they may go five or 10 years before having to rescreen. And by having that infrequent retesting, that will lower cost a lot. Now then, let's mouth the question of the test is positive. What do we do now? You're in primary care. Um, So cardiovascular risk, for early stage CKD is of primary importance. And I think it gets lost in a kidney focused world. And so um, prevention efforts could be blood pressure control, intensification or initiation. Uh, It could be use of statins. Um, For really high risk patients, it may be an antiplatelet, you know, starting aspirin. Uh, And then depending on the stage and the albuminuria, you know, the toolkit has really nice progression without getting into every detail. But the reason we need to screen by GFR and albuminuria is the treatment's different and the evidence is different. Uh, But it's all there and it's all evidence-based. And that's why detecting CKD is the initiation of a real evidence-based cascade of care. Yeah, Michael, you you mentioned some... um um lifestyle interventions that you guys considered interesting in, in your discussion and need to be prioritized. Wanted to touch on the other issue of um, pharmacological interventions that are available. Interesting times for nephrology, right? It's the ones that are living with lots of new things coming up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, um, so, of course, the SGLT2 inhibitors, you know, are the, the new uh, cardiorenal miracle drugs. Uh, I think it's fair to say. Um, and they are costly. And so this is where risk stratification and treatment need to go hand in hand, because the most common complaint on a screening program is we can't afford to treat all those people, you know, but whatever slice of the CKD pie one can afford to treat, you want to treat the highest risk and work up from there. So SGLT2 inhibitors for patients with albuminuria and diabetes and patients with advent uh, advanced albuminuria and non-diabetes. Um, uh, ACE inhibitors, of course, are the cornerstone of therapy for at all stages of albuminuria. Um, we'll see. Uh, I, I believe that blood pressure control is really important. Um, glycemic control, I think, is important for diabetics. Um, and then, you know, as, as CKUD gets more advanced, you know, things like acid base may be more important. But really, it's targeting to the stage. Like, is there anything I, I missed that we should add in on that? 
Yeah, I, I think it's such an exciting time again for nephrology. So the SGLT2 inhibitors and also recently finerenone, the non-steroidal mineralocorticoid antagonist. And so, you know, I, I think it remains to be seen, um, you know, how these therapies will lay on each other. Um, but certainly, you know, in addition to the ACE ARBs, adding the SGLT2s for pa- patients both with and without diabetes and there's a benefit regardless of their level of albuminuria. So I, I think, you know, truly exciting, exciting times. We've tripled the number of pharmacologic options we have for our patients in the past couple of years. Well, guys, you know, this is all very interesting. And, uh, and I, I think we're all very happy with the, you know, increasing in the portfolio of uh, kidney protective drugs. But uh, why don't you, you know, bring us back to the, you know, some of the interventions that were proven to be effective about 20 years ago. I'm talking about the ACEs and ARs, right? So we, I mean, the recommendation is 1A from 20 years ago uh, trials. And if you look at the reality of how many patients are getting that treatment, you see that, I mean, first of all, there is a, a big variation across geographies. It might depend on availability of drugs, cost. Uh, but perhaps most importantly to uh, having a community engaged in this challenge to treat patients with the best therapies. So, Michael, what do you, what do you think about this? Why is it that, you know, for ACEs and ARBs, we have such an um, underutilization compared to the level of evidence that we have that they are beneficial? It's incredible. Uh, I, I see 50% in our country, you know, even with people with albuminuria. And it's very distressing. Um, I think that we need to incentivize providers better to do the the low-hanging fruit, not-so-exciting therapies that really have wonderful long-term benefit. Um, I think we need uh, primary care to be supported more from nephrology. I think, um, like many specialties, Uh, I think in some settings, nephrology is too much of a referral destination and not enough of a partner in primary care. And I think there are settings that may do this very well, where nephrologist is a consultant that comes into primary care and not a destination for patients outside of primary care. So we need need, uh, systems of care that bring that, that, that close this huge knowledge gap, which is only going to grow. You know, if, if the ACE inhibitor evidence is poorly recognized in primary care after 20 years, how long will it take us to implement new therapies? So I, I believe in decision support. I believe in co-managed care. I believe in spreading our specialists out as widely as possible, where they give a bit of input to a lot of patients. Um, more than intense treatment of a select few. So those are some things I would like to see, you know, as we try to disseminate, um, you know, these ideas into, into helping real patients' lives. And later, I mean, you guys are not nephrologists, are you? Uh, and so it's really good to get your view on this. Um, as we've heard, we've not been that great at reaching the masses because we've been sitting as referral, as you said, a referral destination. How do you think, Laker, we should be, you know, 
how, how should we be collaborating with our specialists uh, and with primary care, with diabetologists as well? Because diabetologists uh, have done this really well. Um, they really have reached the masses in a way that nephrology hasn't. Um, so what tips would you give to us um, looking at not just early detection um, and treatment, but also prevention? Because um, we're not so good at prevention either in nephrology. Um, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think some excellent points were made that we need to spread the expertise of nephrologists across kind of greater segments of of, pop, of the population health. Um, and so doing interventions that are leveraging health information technology, so use of uh, e-consults, creating a registry within the electronic health record so you can track patients over time and reach out to the highest risk patients and risk stratified patients. Um, you know, those are all things that have been done in diabetes um, and certainly could be applied to CKD. And I think increasingly uh, people are people are doing so. But um, yeah, the decision support, e-consults, kind of all of these health information technology interventions. And, and I'd like to add, um, in fairness to nephrologists, I don't think oncologists do a lot of cancer prevention, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a new model for the specialist to enter the pre-disease category. But I think what's different in uh, kidney disease is that nephrologists can only see the tip of the iceberg and just, just the massive burden of kidney disease that can only be treated by generalists. And so I think that makes it a little different and, I think nephrologists will enjoy educating primary care. We just need to bring uh, the groups together, you know, and I think the intentions are there, the skills are there. Yeah, the interactions are always really good fun, aren't they? Because we go when we communicate with primary care and diabetologists, we see a different aspect of disease, which helps us be better nephrologists. So I think it's a bi-directional relationship that adds value to the, page, the whole patient journey. So I'm a big fan of uh, collaborative um, kidney care across, across early all the way down to, to late uh, CKD. And systems have to pay specialists to do that. I mean, that's perhaps the most valuable thing a specialist may do is to disseminate knowledge and to impact on a broad scale. And yet uh, some healthcare systems like the U.S. Uh, may be procedure heavy or focusing reimbursement at the very latest stages of disease. So we need to find ways to encourage and incentivize you know, these very um, you know, public health minded activities. Yeah, and I, I think that gets back to early detection again. Is really this all starts with sending the right tests of uh, you know measuring EGFR as well as the albuminuria and, and albuminuria. There's such limited expertise outside of nephrology, so really kind of understanding how to interpret it, exactly which test to send. There, there's a lot of confusion, and so nephrologists can really help help in that and you know ensure that the CKD is appropriately tested for and, and risk stratified and staged. When talking about collaboration, uh, I think an additional um, output of the early detection and intervention initiative has been the cost-focused um, paper that you uh, developed in collaboration with the ISN Global Kidney Health Atlas, which actually surveys 
uh, a lot of countries when it comes to, you know, capturing information about the local reality in terms of healthcare system, availability and access. Can you tell us, tell us a little bit about this initiative? Yeah, so, so that was a great collaboration between KDGO and ISN. And, you know, this cost issue kept coming up about how much do these tests cost? And so we wanted to find out in a range of low, middle income and high income countries. And so we surveyed nephrologists from over 30 countries and tried to come up with a number for all of the different tests, cystatin C, creatinine. Uh, urine creatinine, urine albumin. Um, and so so now we have that data and kind of a, a better idea of exactly how much those tests cost um, in, in different settings. And this work is available to together with um, many other uh, interesting resources like quick guides, teaching tools, slides, uh, resource for patients, and uh, a series of webinars that were developed there. This part of this other, other, other aspect of the initiative, was, which is all about dissemination and implementation, right, uh, Michael? And I, I wanted to circle back to our initial discussion about the importance of not stopping uh, with the report of a meeting or with the publication of a guideline, right? How, how do you see the opportunities from now on? Yeah, um, I've definitely learned over the years that writing papers uh, doesn't necessarily make patients better. And so uh, it's a huge task. The field of implementation research, you know, has really grown over the last couple of decades. I don't think it's perfected, but um, our priority right now needs to be how best to implement these recommendations, uh, you know, in various settings, both within countries and across the globe, uh, we need to share best practices. We'd love to see, I think the ISN is a wonderful venue for uh, interested parties across the world to sort of share ideas. You know, this would be a great venue, you know, to uh, circulate best practice and build interventions together. And one area we haven't talked about, I think, is how to activate the patients and the communities themselves. Um, you know, because there is so much inertia and the primary care providers, you know, may be scorecarded on other topics that aren't, you know, related to the kidney. And so it may be that, um, dissemination efforts really start with the communities that are most affected by kidney disease and work up from there. Yeah, I'm getting, definitely getting that feel of this is a real opportunity for us to make a huge difference globally for CKD across the board, not just early. If we detect early, we've got an opportunity to, to make a difference to a lot of people. And you guys have provided us with a, um, a whole series of um, recommendations, but also the toolkits and uh, the supporting systems to actually enact that um, and deliver it. So, um, yeah, thank you very much. Um, and I'm just going to finish with one last question because this podcast goes out globally. Um, so it has a really wide reach. We're very lucky. Um, what would you want people when they switch off this podcast? What do you want them to go and do? I would like, um, if, if for the nephrologist in the audience, I would like them to reach out to their primary care referral base and begin talking about screening. Uh, I would like to tear down the barriers, all the reasons why not to do it, 
and to think about the positive outcomes. And the main negatives are too many patients have CKD. We can't treat them all. And I would like to empower um, our audience to use risk stratification and to, um, to treat smartly. If you detect the highest risk patients, treat them. And then the next highest, the moderate risk. But I, I think uh, by detecting and staging patients effectively, uh, the treatments we can afford, whatever setting we practice in, we'll give to the right patients and have the greatest impact. That, that's such a great message. Yeah, I, I would want people to know that CKD does change management. There's so much that it impacts in terms of medication dosing, medication choices, chronic disease management, um, starting you know these evidence-based therapies that we now have. And so it's so important to to test for CKD to stage it appropriately and you know it's it's although it's asymptomatic it's it's not only just an elevated creatinine it's it's so much more and it's really impacting people's cardiorenal metabolic health so um it's just so important Michael Shilipak and Sri Leka Tumanapali, representatives of the Controversies Conference on the Early Identification and Intervention of CKD, uh, organized by KDGO. Thank you so much for being here with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having us. As mentioned during the podcast, if you would like to learn more about tools and actions you can take towards achieving early CKD identification and intervention in your health system's primary care setting, visit the ISN and Kadigo's toolkit at theisn.org forward slash CKD toolkit.